When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I remember I threw the script down the first time I read it because I thought he was going to do something so horrible and then he doesn't. And so, uh, you know, it just uh, it was just a real visceral experience. And and then as soon as I really started to engage in in his mind and who this person is, William Tell, what 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 is his behavior like? The whole thing broke open for me and that's that's what Paul does as a writer. He just gives an actor this playground of things to work with. Hello, and welcome to The Awardist from Entertainment Weekly, taking you inside this year's top contenders for the Oscars and more of the industry's biggest awards. I'm Clarissa Cruz, EW's Executive Editor. I'm joined by my co-host, Josh Rothkopf, EW's Senior Movies Editor. Hi, Josh. Hello, greetings, happy awards seasoning. (laughs) I am very excited about this week's episode. Today we have segments from two separate interviews, both of them with actors that we're pretty crazy about. Although their performances are a little under the radar, we have an interview with Jodie Comer, who was just so amazing in The Last Duel. And we also have an interview with Oscar Isaac, who was very memorable in Dune and also in Paul Schrader's The Card Counter. They've both given really great performances in these movies. And we want to cast light today, shed some light on the performers that, you know, really should be in the awards conversation more but they're dark horses. They're, they're not even on the bubble per se. They're the performances that, that made movie going especially rich for us this year uh, and perhaps um, should be more forward in, in the awards talk and maybe we can do some good here and steer attention in their direction. So why don't we start actually, before we get to our interviews, tell me about Jodie Comer and, and that performance in Last Duel and, and why that so connected with you. Yeah, I, I just thought Jody was so great in that movie. I mean, I don't know how, how, how um, in case listeners haven't seen it, it's a movie told in three parts and it's told from one man's perspective, another man's perspective, and then Jody's perspective. And, you know, the movie sort of reenacts some of the same scenes just from these different perspectives. And Jody is just mesmerizing throughout the whole thing. So basically, this movie tells the story about a man who's accused of rape of another man's wife. And it's told in three perspectives, as I said, and Jody is the woman in question. And her performance, I think, is just key to this whole movie. Without her, um, I don't think it would have worked. And her sort of very subtle changes through the three parts of the movie, I think, were so amazing and just resonant and, and just grounded this movie in a way that I think you know, maybe somebody else in that role wouldn't have been able to do. So I think it was super important. The journey of this movie is interesting because it was one of those movies that died a quick death at the box office, but then uh, got a second life on streaming. You know, I think a lot of people just sort of dismissed it after that. And then when it actually, um, you know, more people got to see it, they're like, oh, well, this is actually pretty good. (laughs) So I think it, it, it was just a victim of its own sort of maybe bad marketing or bad box office. But I think for whatever reason, she deserved to have more, um, recognition for this role and, um, and her part. 
See, I'm not I'm not surprised to hear that at all because I've I've long had this idea, this theory that Ridley Scott, the director, is actually a secret, maybe not so secret, feminist, and that his movies consistently, all the way back to Alien, have really, really strong women characters in them. I mean, obviously, something like Thelma and Louise would figure in that as well. But even movies like Someone to Watch Over Me, even G.I. Jane with Demi Moore, there's a through line throughout his entire filmography of these tough, you know, very sensible, strong women. And uh, I love that aspect about his his filmmaking, and this definitely follows, seems to follow suit. Yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of, I mean, you don't look at the trailer for this movie and think that there's going to be any humor in it. But a lot of um, the different perspectives that you find humor in just sort of the ridiculousness of men um, and how they perceive a certain event. And then Jody comes in and and says, no, that's not actually how it happened. This is not, this is not how this was perceived. And I think it was just a very powerful way of structuring the movie and telling the story um, in an entertaining way and being able to sort of communicate that through three versions of the same story, I think was really great. When it's Ben Affleck in that haircut, I definitely would say <laughs> it's a story about the ridiculous of men. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure. It's a self-deprecating aspect of that film. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. And, and maybe that's a good segue to the other interview we're going to feature, Oscar Isaac. I could talk for this entire podcast, for several podcasts, let's say, about Dune and <laughs> how, how I think he's so great as Duke Atreides, Paul Atreides' father, Timothy Chalamet's father in this film. I think what he might get more attention for, actually, in terms of critics and uh, not Oscars, though, so managed expectations, is The Card Counter, which is his leading role in Paul Schrader's new film. And The Card Counter is, is like so painfully Paul Schrader. It's a painfully Paul <laughs> Schrader-ish movie. It's about a solitary man who's journaling. He's keeping a diary. He's, you know, he's just like uh, Robert De Niro's character, Travis Bickle in, in Taxi Driver, another Paul Schrader script. He's, you know, he's talking about how he's, you know, the lonely man and he's a gambler and that's a big metaphor. And then of course he, he meets a woman played by Tiffany Haddish and is very subtle, refreshingly adult, middle-aged flirtation that happens between them. And then there's also, you know, a lot of subtext about guilt and recrimination. He's a former soldier who actually was stationed at Abu Ghraib. So there's there's a sub-layer about malfeasance and, and political war crimes. And um, so there's a lot going on in this movie and it's dense. In a, a, light, a light romp. Is, a is light romp. Yeah, it's <laughs> the kind of movie that I think critics kind of flipped out over, but then it disappeared in about 20 minutes. Like it wasn't on a radar in terms of box office, but it definitely satisfied fans of Schrader's economy and the way he makes movies that feel that taste almost distilled, like distilled vodka or something. There's something that's very concentrated about his style of filmmaking. It's not a lot of fuss. There's no fancy camera moves. And Oscar Isaac really understood that and how he was going to have to hold the camera and hold the entire story just with a thousand-yard stare and his eyes and the, the idea of being a persuasive gambler, someone who just wants to go from hand to hand and not really think about the past or the future for that matter. He's just thinking about the pot growing. And, and that's a very suggestive character to play. Gamblers have a great history in, in cinema. But The Card Counter, that's a performance that I flipped over. I, I thought he was, he was terrific. And I actually do think that 
Schrader's films succeed or fail based on the casting, you know? So if it's Willem Dafoe or if it's Nick Nolte in Affliction, you know, then I feel like there's a lot of interest there. And sometimes his casting isn't as strong, but this would definitely be in the strong category for me. Yeah, no, I agree. I feel like this was just one of those movies that's just like the slowest of the, of the slow burn. Um, you know, I mean, you know, I, I, I have lots of an attention span. So, so it was, it was hard for me to stay in it the, the whole time, but there's no denying that Oscar Isaac is a very magnetic actor. I mean, he's in the internet's boyfriend for a reason. And, um, and I think he played to his strengths in this role and it was really different from the kinds of things that he's been doing. It was definitely certainly different from what he did in Dune, but that same soulfulness and that same, you know, kind of seriousness, I think, played itself well here. Absolutely. And when I think about the performance that he gives in Dune, there's a line that Oscar Isaac has that I think is it's probably the strongest moment in the whole in all of Dune, even though his role is limited and I don't want to spoil it, but the whole film, at least this first half, is about Timothy Chalamet's Paul coming into this destiny, the possibility that he may be fated to lead a revolution. And it's a political awakening. But there's a moment very early in the film where he's talking with his father and they're leaving their home planet of Caladan to go to Dune, an inhospitable desert planet. And he looks at his dad and his dad says, I'm paraphrasing, but this is Oscar Isaac killing it. And he says, you know, even if you only realize that you were supposed to be my son, that would be enough for me. And I would love you for it. And, and and this whole idea that the destiny and the weight of fate, the weight of this this whole messianic plot that Frank Herbert devises for this novel is just on the one hand. And on the other hand is a father's love for a son. And maybe that's really all we need to be as people is just to be good sons and daughters and fathers and, and mothers. And I feel like that's why Dune is beloved. That's one of the reasons why Dune is beloved is because it's both intimate and universal and sprawling. And it's the kind of thing where if you're losing the thread in terms of all the different aliens and dialects and all the, you know, the density of Dune that its fans really love, there's throughout this really moving, understandable, approachable through line, basically, about family and royalty to, to some degree as well. So Oscar Isaac, I think, really delivers a lot of the emotion to that film and a film that uh, I think needs it. Hopefully, in part two, he'll have his share of flashbacks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh, hope so. Yeah, no, he's great. I mean, it's been a great year for him. He also had um, uh, Scenes from Marriage with, That's right. with uh, fellow Oscar contender Jessica Chastain. Is that his best clip of the year, that that runway clip that went viral? Oh, I think so. I think that's the clip of, of 2021. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to discount the rest of his stuff, but that one was pretty good. <laughs> Who else are you thinking about, about, Josh? I don't want to call them long shots, but just those that we want to advocate for. I mean, you know, we're, yeah. we're Oscar voting season is, is upon us. And, you know, if there are people that you want to advocate for or pull for, who would that be? Well, yeah, there are people I want to advocate for. And I think it would start, it would start with Joanna Hogg's The Souvenir Part 2. And obviously anything that's like a, a part two or sequel um, is gonna, um, there's gonna be an initial resistance, especially if you haven't seen part one. But, um, I'm crazy about the souvenir. The souvenir is written and directed by Joanna Hogg, and it's an autobiographical movie about her time in film school in the late, in the early and mid 80s, actually. And then the souvenir part two continues her journey. The character's name is Julie, and she's played by 
honor Swinton Byrne, Tilda Swinton's daughter. It's an amazing performance. And the reason why The Souvenir Part 2 might even be better than The Souvenir Part 1, it's the rare case of a sequel perhaps being better than its first part, is that uh, the first film is really about how bad romance can affect you. Like, are you going to survive a bad boyfriend, uh, a heroin-addicted boyfriend? And that's, you know, that's a harrowing story whenever it's told, but it's something that is familiar. Part two, on the other hand, is about after you've survived it, how do you then turn those lessons into art, into filmmaking? So it's it's both about making art and it's about finding vitality and strength and actually using it to propel yourself forward. So there's something that's very inspiring about the souvenir part two. Honor Swinton continues to just kill it. It's funny, has Richard Ayoade in it. And, and I think that Joanna Hogg, she always conceived this as a two-part movie and she's really ended up making something very rich, something that if you watch two parts back to back feels like of a piece. And I, and this is not a movie that's ever going to be nominated in any circumstance. And I wish that were different. I wish that weren't the case. I wish that we were talking about Honor Swinton or at least Joanna Hogg's script in some context. Did you, did you like the souvenir? I didn't see the souvenir because I had the same reaction of like, oh, you know, in the triage of trying to see as many movies as we can in order to, to do the awards coverage. You know, that, that one uh, just seemed like less of a priority to me because of the two. Uh, which is, yeah. which, but that's why we have you, Josh, so that you can kind of fill, <laughs> fill in the gaps in my knowledge. Um, but you, you, you can't see everything. You can't hog everything. <laughs> you know, I, I can't Joanna hog everything. Right. Um, but, um, but no, no, I mean, I trust you and, and Leah Greenblatt, um, our, our film critic also. So, you know, it definitely seems like something that n- not just you two, but I, I, you know, in, in the atmosphere in the awards atmosphere, you know, I've heard this. Um, and mm-hmm. so it is, it is in my, in my never ending queue. There is something that happens with, with critics too. They didn't give it many awards either as much as I thought they were going to. There's something about the shiny object that comes along. So right. if you had asked people around the time of Ken, maybe we'd have all said, Oh, the souvenir part two, but by the time Drive My Car is picked up or whatever it is now, you know, the attentions have shifted. It's good that you mentioned Drive My Car because like uh, when we're talking about advocacy, I do think that there is heat behind that movie. Um, but one um, movie, and it's fresh in my mind because it's the last one I saw, was um, The Worst Person in the World. Um, Absolutely. There are a couple performances there that we both want to advocate for. But that was just, that blew my mind. You were telling, you and Leah were telling me for months that that movie was going to blow my mind. <laughs> and, um, and, and, it, and it did. Um, yes. It did. It's a Norwegian movie and a very different take on a rom-com. Although, I, you know, I don't want to call it a rom-com. I don't want people to go into it thinking it's like that. I guess it's it's kind of a romantic dramedy. Um, yeah, it's flirty and it has funny moments. Yeah. And I thought it was just, it was just so well done. Yeah. As this gut punch, I mean, it really, yes. it's, it's, it is, it is a movie about a lot of deep, deep ideas and those performances, not just Renata Rainsby, who is just carrying this film on her mighty shoulders, but I think Anders Danielson Lee, who, who plays the first boyfriend is also this incredible performance in the film. I think what, what's great about worst person in the world is that, its characters aren't just one thing. You know, you watch a rom-com. Rom-com, you're right. It's not, it's too reductive a term. But if you were to watch a rom-com, there are types that the supporting cast always sort of have to fit into the parameters of. So you have this sort of 
the bitchy ex-girlfriend or the sort of the bad boyfriend from the past or and then the, there's the too perfect you know alternative or the like there's cliches and stereotypes that this film the worst person in the world just deftly avoids and every single person who's trotted on is messy and understandably human and rich um there's a lot of facets to these characters and you realize watching it like we don't have to settle for less. We could have so much more from our movies, especially ones that deal with things that we're all relating to, love and loss and the idea of connecting with another person and, and how much do you get out of a relationship? How much do you give to relationships? That film nourished me. I loved it. And I think those performances should be in the conversation, but for some reason, they're not in the conversation. So why is that? I don't know. I mean, like, I think performances and movies take on a momentum of their own as more as and it, maybe because we're on the inside of this sort of award season, you know, bubble, sometimes it becomes an echo chamber of uh, people saying, okay, yeah, this this person is the front runner. And this person is, you know, is the person's going to upset and there's only so many slots and so many things to talk about. I, I'm not saying it's all about groupthink. But I think that, you know, it's also that's why it's a campaign because it's a skill to keep people in the conversation throughout this entire time. And this, this uh, award season seems particularly <laughs> drawn out. It does. And it's hard. It's especially if you're talking about, let's say, a Sundance movie that has to sustain a campaign, sometimes 13, 14, 15 months. I mean, it's, a, it's not just making sure that a movie stays in the front of people's minds, but it's also there's a spend involved. There's These are expensive, these campaigns. So if you're talking about a little movie like Flea or Summer of Soul or, or Passing, one of those Sundance movies that really knocked us out, um, those campaigns really have, they have got, it's a stamina game for them. And I also think that there is, there's an organizing principle that I think we all have as human beings where we want to sort of rank things and we want to kind of, I think this is just the nature of just awards in general. Having a front runner helps because it allows us to cohere our thoughts and gather attention around one person and also, you know, maybe argue and fight for people who are on the rise. And so, I don't know, maybe there's something easier about having a sort of a, a bracket of nominees. I wish that we had room for more nominees in all the different categories. And I love the fact that the best picture race is no longer five films. I almost kind of wish we could do that with with the acting performances. I mean, would that just be too crazy? That would be too crazy. I don't know. Crazy for who, you know, like who, who's really, you know, like if it's about including more people and then maybe, you know, something like Spider-Man, which uh, got a lot of attention once, it, you know, made all that money. Maybe it would be good for the Oscars to, to be a little bit more mass because I think the average viewer oftentimes will see like, okay, I've never, I haven't seen any of these movies. I'm not really that interested in the show there shouldn't be so much of a divide between what is covered at the Oscars and, and what people's actual movie interests are. There shouldn't be a divide like that. And I, I, I want to believe that the Oscars is making a turn towards greater accessibility. Obviously this year, they're going to have a host for the first time in a while. And it may, it may very well be that the performances that are nominated and that eventually make it to the podium represent a wider swath of the talent. This is always the reason why whenever that argument comes up about um, should we have categories that are that don't have gender? So maybe it should just be best actor for both men and women in one category. I never like that as an idea because ultimately it just means 
fewer awards are given out and fewer people are recognized. When, when the fact of the matter is, if you love movies like we all do here in the awardist, you want to celebrate as many of them as possible. Is there another performance? Is there another film or a script or a director, someone, anyone that is just not being talked about that you think should be? You know, I, I mentioned this, I think, in the beginning of our podcast, but I really liked Red Rocket and, oh, um, yeah. <laughs> and Simon Rex. He was fantastic in that. He was mesmerizing. He was fascinating. And I think um, such an interesting, flawed, crazy, narcissistic character uh, that you still end up rooting for. And I just think that's such a stacked category that he's sort of um, gone quiet in the conversation. But I still think that um, he was fantastic. That we want to advocate for that. What about you? I think that there is a world, uh, we just don't live in it, but there's a world out there in which Zola is a huge, yeah. huge critical darling and massive audience and critical and Oscar success, but we, we don't somehow live in this world. Zola, it's such a strange anomaly. The film already feels so old. It, and I think it first played at Sundance yeah. two years ago, right? You know, mm -hmm. but it's, I feel like um, that's a movie that was so current and it felt so now it's based on a string of tweets and Riley Keough and Taylor Page are both so extraordinary in that movie and what they're doing I think is extremely difficult which is cementing a kind of a friendship and at the same time exploiting each other and subtly jockeying for power it feels hip to social media and to um, the ways we communicate but without it seeming like a like scolding, like, ooh, social media bad for you. There's something that felt very fresh about it. And uh, I just wish that that film were somehow having its own Oscar moment that, again, this is not a universe that we live in, you know? So, but check that one out if you haven't already. On that note, um, <laughs> let's go into our two performances that we would like to advocate for. The first is Jodie Comer for her fantastic performance in The Last Duel followed by Oscar Isaac for his performance in Card Counter, but Dune as well. So enjoy. I'm here with Jodie Comer, star of The Last Duel. Thanks for stopping by, Jodie. Of course. How are you? I'm good. We're here to talk about The Last Duel, where, Jody, you gave such an amazing performance. I've been a fan of yours since Killing Eve, but this just yeah. blew me away. Can you tell our listeners what The Last Duel is about for those who haven't seen it? Yes, of course. It's about one woman's fight um, for justice, ultimately. Um, the story is set in medieval France, and Marguerite is a woman who testifies that she is raped by the friend of her husband. And the story follows on from there. It's an it's a interesting kind of format. The story is told from three perspectives, which I thought was uh, quite a dangerous way to tell a story in a way. You know, it was very important for everyone involved, actually, that people come away from this movie knowing that she was the one who was telling the truth, you know, and I was really fascinated by this kind of play with perspective. And because I think it's very true of how we live our lives, you know, we can come away from a situation and have um, a very different retelling, but there is ultimately one truth. And I thought she was remarkable and extremely courageous. So to have been given the opportunity to give her a voice um, was, yeah, was what I was most drawn to. 
exactly what you said. I thought the movie's treatment of perception and perspective was so fascinating. And I, I loved seeing how the same scenarios were interpreted in different ways, particularly how it shows how blind and ridiculous the male ego can be sometimes. Did you modify your performance for the different parts and how so? Yeah, I mean, for each, um, well, especially for Legree's and Carouge's narrative, you know, I had to really kind of think about how it was they saw me, um, you know, as a wife and as an acquaintance, um, and really try and think about what they needed from me in those moments to tell their side of the story, you know, which is, a, is an interesting way to work as, a, as an actor, because Usually you only hone in and focus on your own instinct and your own motives. Um, and I was often having to go against that a lot of the time, which was fun sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, it's great to be able to play around with that. I felt a lot more relaxed about doing that once we'd established Marguerite's version on camera. Like I felt very protective of that. <laughs> um, but it was a really fascinating way to work, you know, and I think, the biggest thing that we had to think about was um, just the level of how much we pushed it. I think what's beautiful about the script and what Matt, Ben and Nicole did um, and what's kind of fascinating is that in those scenes that are played from different perspectives, the dialogue is exactly the same. So it was very evident to me that a lot of this was going to be performance led. Um, so there's a challenge in itself. Yeah, it was really, really fascinating. And then, you know, you never want the audience to be one step ahead of you. Um, so I think that's when we really had to think about, okay, how far do we push this reaction? How far do we push this glance? But yeah, I think it's a really enjoyable part of the film, especially when you get to the end. I feel like when you get to the end, it makes you think back to all the moments you've seen previously and like kind of reassess and go, oh, okay. Um, at least that is my, <laughs> is my hope. Yeah, no, that, that was exactly the experience that I had watching it. And, and I think that's the sign of a really engaging movie is that you keep on turning it over in your head and, and kind of reliving the scenes with the knowledge that you have at the end. And I thought yeah. that I, I think it was such a testament to your performance because really, I don't think that would work without you at the center of this. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah. Can you tell me about some of the decisions you made as an actress? for your performance? Because I, I just thought it was, it was such a strong center to this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some moments that I can, can think of, um, we just, uh, I really wanted to have a sense of personality, you know, and wit and humor and just to make sure she was alive. I think there's a tendency sometimes and a danger that when we play people from a historical period, you know, there is definitely, um, you know, different manners and there was a certain expectation and elegance and poise, but then there is something I think there can be a danger there where a, a performance can become quite stiff. Um, and I really didn't want that for her, especially when she's so young and full of life and desires. And so like little choices, I guess I can think of is um, there's one tiny one that I, I kind of enjoyed um, when I saw it back was there's a really simple kind of beat of um, the scenes played in two perspectives. It's in Carouge's and it's in Marguerite's and they're at the dinner table with her mother-in-law and he says, I'm off to Paris. And in Carouge's version, you know, she kind of leans over the table longingly and she's like, please don't go. And then I think in her version, I might have thrown an eye roll in, which may be <laughs> pushing it a little bit too far. Um, but Rady was like, I, I like that. I like that. And then um, he was always kind of encouraging 
you know, me to bring kind of parts of my myself out in, in those beats. So that was always enjoyable, you know. A lot of it is um, I'm not really aware of. Like what I really enjoy about the process and what I do is like I like I like to do my homework and no ways maybe how I want to play it, but then I very much like to leave it to the day and see what the actor opposite me has given me and what we're kind of finding in the moment. It's interesting because, you know, this very simple things I had in my head was, you know, Carouge thinks he is the best husband in the world. You know, he he thinks I'm a, a doting wife, happy marriage, great sex life. You no, know, a marriage made from love is what he thinks you know and then there's there's Legree's narrative um which is something totally different so I feel like once I knew those kind of basics I then had a kind of playground to to kind of experiment in yeah well uh, it's interesting that you bring that up because I think the movie says some some very telling things about um as I mentioned before the male ego and um and perspective and and like you said you know the different characters interpreting the same event as something totally different what went into your playing of those sort of idealized parts i mean idealized on their end yeah. as opposed to yours i mean how how did you bring sort of an honesty to to that um i just had to treat it as reality you know just had to treat it as okay this is the truth in this in this moment but it was funny because you know when when i got told about the project and i met ridley and you know they really wanted to champion her and her story and make sure that she came out of the the, this storytelling as the the hero and I remember flicking you know reading the script and going through page by page and going hang on a minute where like where is she what's going on like and then you know the payoff was so huge for me at the end because I realized I kind of played into that assumption that she was the wife she was um almost like a prop within the telling of this story. And it was really interesting because I remember when the film got announced and, um, you know, there was kind of like a synopsis of what it was going to be. And that was very much what people thought Marguerite was going to be, you know, and yes, you know, her, her telling is at the end, but I feel like it's all the more powerful because you are, you are left with her and you, you kind of realize, you know, that kind of length of time, I don't know. I, I feel like it really speaks to um, what it must have been like to be a woman in that time and watching, waiting, listening, and never really being able to speak your truth, you know, and, and, and she did that. Mm -hmm. I found it super resonant. You know, obviously, that this was many years ago that the story is set in, but there are so many things about, you know, finding your voice and, and finding your place in the world, you know, as a woman in, in a man's world that for better or worse are still things that people grapple with now. And I mean, is that something that attracted you to the script where even though it was set in this time, it sort of brings up the question of how far have we really come in a way? It's really exposing, isn't it? I mean, I, I feel like it really holds a mirror up to us as a society when you realize you know you know when you think about the courtroom scene where she's sat alone in front of all of those men while they ask her the most personal insulting questions about the experience it's about the assault itself about her sexual pleasures you know and and, and you realize that you know like many women who speak out today you know they are doubted they are questioned they are publicly humiliated you know it's all of these things and when you realize that this has been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years and yes we have come a long way but we've by no means come far enough 
and I think that wasn't lost on me you know I, I really felt a sense of a, a duty of care really when exploring this and and showing this on the screen because I knew there was going to be so many people who tune in to watch this film and connect with it in some way on a personal level yeah I was always very aware of that and I think I never wanted the scenes to be gratuitous you know I think what's so powerful and confronting about the rape in Marguerite's story is you are it's so intimate you know you're right in with her face you don't see anything else you just see her face um and that was a I felt a really um powerful decision uh, that was made for for that um telling yeah I, I found that there were so many powerful moments in the movie for me Nicole you know we couldn't have done it without Nicole because she brought such a nuance and a depth to Marguerite that I feel you need a you need a woman's sensibility you need an understanding and she's a ton of fun yeah. <laughs> which I always which I always appreciate in a person <laughs> yeah yeah they were talking about sort of late night writing sessions at, at Matt's house um did you ever sit in on any of those or were you thought involved until later yeah no they did they they invited me around um and I was because at first I was kind of like oh no I don't you know, I don't need to do that. And I was like, no, come on. You know, it's, it's just like that thing, like stepping outside of yourself and just realizing where you are. And I was kind of, you know, like, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm sat around the table with these three people kind of, and then wanting to know what I'm thinking. And, you know, especially there's a, there's a moment at the end before the duel when she's with her baby and Karouche comes in and she, she has this moment of like a realization of God of, I now see why so many women before me have not spoken out is because I am now so confronted by what I have to lose. And, um, and I remember I sat with them around the table for that moment. We were trying to figure out, you know, what, what, what she would say, you know, and where I experienced that, um, and was introduced to that was on killing Eve, you know, before, before killing Eve, I, thought you know you're an actress you lay in your lines you go to set you go home and that's you know you don't need to do any more than that and then having worked on Killing Eve and for, for a long time and you know as each season goes on the producers kind of you know kind of saying come on you're at this table what is it you think what is it you want what do you feel is this working is it not you get a real sense of your own voice and um, your instincts um, so I think that's what Killing Eve introduced to me so it's I realize now that, oh God, the experience is so much more fruitful when you're, you're present in those types of conversations and you, you listen to what other people have picked up on or, you know, that you may have missed and you think, oh God, that's a brilliant idea. I never, ever thought of that. Um, and it's such a collaboration and the last duel really, really was, and that's hugely down to those guys. Yeah. Yeah. What was it like working with Matt and Ben? I mean, they're so iconic in so many ways and, yeah. and obviously have been friends for a long time. I mean, did they, what did they do to sort of get you into the group? I mean, they didn't, they didn't have to do anything. They're just lovely. Like they're very, very friendly and very down to wear. And, you know, that's what I think is interesting about, you know, kind of public image and persona and, and, and what's kind of created. And then, you know, like, having watched their work for many, many years and being, being a huge admirer and, and then seeing them in real life. And, you know, the work is the first and most important thing to them. And they're just normal people, <laughs> you know, it's like, just like everyone else. Um, but yeah, no, they were, they were great. And as was Adam, you know, I had a lot of kind of 
tricky material with Adam, but he was, you know, hugely respectful. And we, again, got on very, very well. And it just felt like an incredibly safe space for everyone to just, you know, do the best work. Yeah. Speaking of safe space, I wanted to ask you about the rape scene because it, and, and done, you know, three times in, in, in the movie. I mean, what was it like to shoot that? I, I did some reading about, you know, past interviews with Ridley and just sort of how, how he directed it. And um, can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So we stepped down for five months due to COVID. Um, so we actually shot these scenes uh, near the last couple of weeks of, of the shoot um, in its entirety. The night before we were due to film those scenes, Ridley, Adam and I, we met at the studio and we, we went to the set and we blocked the scene out physically, not at kind of 100%, but literally just kind of stepping through positions, you know, lift, you know, just trying to figure out how we got to the bed. We always knew that was where we were to end up. And the rest was just to be figured out and found in the moment. But Ridley was like, I kind of need to know roughly where you guys are going to land because he sets the cameras up. He has four or five cameras. So we did that. We went home. We came to set the next morning. The set was ready to shoot. The cameras were, were in position. And Adam and I were kind of, we were just given the space to find it. And there's just something very electric about the whole experience because the set that really creates almost feels like a theater. Um, the takes were cut eventually, but, you know, one take was like eight minutes long. Um, so it was, it was quite a duration, you know, but it's, it's funny because those kind of moments, like, Sometimes often very rare, but when you're so present, it's almost like you're not aware of what's going on. You know, I feel like we both kind of just gave our all into that space and into each other and just was very clear about if either of us is uncomfortable, this is what we say, you know, we step away. We had an incredible intimacy coordinator called Eater O'Brien, um, who's done incredible work. And, you know, when we finished a take, Every single crew member put down their tools. They stepped away. They left the room uh, and really came in. And we just kind of had a couple of minutes to compose ourselves and just speak very gently about what we thought we'd found, if it felt right, if it didn't feel enough, you know, all those things. And again, we shot Marguerite's version first, which I was um, extremely grateful of. And then we had to figure out how this this act somehow could have seemed complicit, you know? Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, d difficult to watch. And so I was just wondering if it was difficult to shoot. Um, but, um, but it sounds like it was done with the utmost of professionalism and sensitivity. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, lastly, the thing that really kept with me after watching the film is that there just was no, there was no waffling over what the truth was. And I thought that was a very, um, that was a very strong statement for the film to make. But in the end, you know, super satisfying, you know, as, as a watcher, because, because, oh, good. I'm glad you know, you uh, yeah. And, um, and I was wondering how you felt about that. Yeah, there's, there's really no question of what the truth was, even down to the wording of it on the screen when the words yeah. fade, and it's just left with the truth. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, it's the only way we could have told this story. Like I said, this playing around with perspective is so fascinating. And it did feel kind of dangerous because I was like, this has to be executed in such a way that there is no doubt. And I think for me, what's such a beautiful moment is that final beat, you know, when you see her with her child and that 
kind of breath and acceptance, but you sense from her that she went through this terrible thing, but her life will not be defined by it. And she lived many years and she never remarried, you know, and she loved her child. Like her child was the most important thing to her, irrespective of who the father may or may not be. You know, that's a, I feel like her child was the first time she probably ever truly felt love, actually. And I really love that, that moment at the end. I feel it really kind of summed that up perfectly for her. Yeah, absolutely. That was a really beautiful moment. And uh, your performance is a really beautiful performance. So thank, thank you so you. much for joining us on the Awardist today, Jody. Uh, thank you, Clarissa. It was a pleasure. Our thanks to Jody Comer for sitting down with us. The Last Duel is now available streaming. Now we have Clarissa's interview with Oscar Isaac. Welcome, Oscar. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Clarissa. You play two very different characters here in Dune and Card Counter. Can you tell me what your prep was like for both films? We can start with um, Card Counter, where you play William Tell, a professional gambler with a mysterious past. What attracted you to that role? Paul Schrader. I mean, pretty pretty simple. I uh, actually out of school, right when I'd gotten out of school in 2005, 2006, I was out in LA and I auditioned for him in this little strip mall in, in the valley somewhere. At a, he had gotten like this black box theater and I went in there and auditioned for him and I got the role, but unfortunately the movie never ended up coming together, but we stayed in touch. And, uh, and then all these years later, he, uh, he wrote me an email one morning and just said, I wrote this script and I think you'd be great for it. And you want to, you want to do it. Uh, and I read it and I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. I just, it was, it was just, I, I'm like, what did I just read? I don't, I don't know. I don't even understand it. So I read it a second time then a third time. And slowly the character started to emerge for me because he is quite opaque. He's, he's, uh, it's hard to understand. You know, I, I, I thought it was going one way with this, this strange thing that he does of, of, of wrapping all of the furniture and his surroundings in this white cloth. And it's so scary and off-putting. And I remember I threw the script down the first time I read it because I thought he was going to do something so horrible. And then he doesn't. Um, and so, I, you know, it just uh, it was just a real visceral experience. And and then as soon as I really started to engage in, in – um, in his mind and who this person is, William Tell, what, what, what is his behavior like? It just, just the whole thing broke open for me. And that's, that's what Paul does as a writer. He just gives an actor this playground of things to work with, whether it's the, his movement, his body, his posture, the way he speaks, the way he thinks, the cardistry, the penmanship. Um, you know, he, he writes history, uh, in all uh, in, in in the dialogue, he's very much like a Harold Pinter in that way. There's there's so much depth uh, in between the lines. Uh, he he writes the subconscious at work, and so for me, you know, it had been a while since I'd gotten to really delve into a character like that, and it just gave me so much energy to to be able to do that. Yeah, I mean, it must have been quite a change um, considering the roles that you're most known for in sort of these kind of bigger franchises and blockbusters. What was it like to sort of work on this more, I guess, intimate scale? It's such a different thing. You know, it's such a labor of love. It's a tiny little movie. We shot it 20 days uh, in Biloxi, Mississippi, in these really old, uh, pretty garish casinos. 
Um, and that was also incredibly fun because in between takes, I would go and sit at the tables and play poker with the locals and, um, you know, uh, won, won a few, a uh, few rounds, which was really fun, but, uh, it felt like I really got to live, got to live in it. And, and also it's just amazing. Cause you know, Paul, Paul Schrader, he's been around forever. He's an old dude. And, and yet there's such a subversive kind of punk rock energy to him and the way he shoots and the way he, the way he knows what the story is. Uh, and that was astounding. Uh, it was quite different from talking to him about the script, you know, and, you know, all of those conversations. Suddenly there's just so much confidence and assuredness where he'd like, he would know the difference between like, okay, that's not the movie. That's the movie, you know, just the difference in that camera angle, you know, and, and to know that right away, uh, it just felt, you just, I, I just had so much trust and so I could dare to let my thoughts dictate what I did, you know, without fear of like having to protect myself or having to make sure the audience knows I'm feeling this or I'm feeling that. I could just live in it and trust that this man who has such a handle on this story and the way that the tone of the, of the movie has to play out, that he'll let me know when it's not enough or when it's too much. Uh, and, and I think day one, halfway through the day, he came up to me and he's like, I think you really got a hit on this character. I think you know this guy. And um, and that just was an amazing feeling. I mean, you also sort of have to trust that the audience is going to go along for this ride because it is a slower paced film. And sort of uh, keeping that balance between being true to the pace of the film, but also making sure that people stay in it. Um, how did you sort of tread that? Well... It's exactly right. Like it isn't up to me, you know. I think uh, what's up to me is to be honest and to play it honestly and to really have the thoughts because you're you're with him, you know. You're 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 following him, and he's also he's he's a man, but he's also an allegory for uh, the American American guilt and the American conscience and what's happened over these many years in these endless wars. Um, and that's not anything that I can play, but that's a lot of the heavy lifting that the film is doing. And what it does is it frees me up. You know, it's not like the Star Wars films or even Dune, which, you know, is a beautifully poetic film, uh, but you're in service to almost like a symphony, you know, you're, you're, you're in service to like this bigger thrust of a story. Uh, and that, you know, and that's about like nailing a very specific target. Whereas this was not that. This was living inside the thoughts and the behavior of this very specific individual and allowing the context of what Paul does around it to dictate the emotional story, you know? So that, and that's very freeing as an actor, you know? And that's why it kind of gives you so much energy back because you just have to like live in the thoughts and the thoughts that he writes are just so profound. Absolutely. I read somewhere, or maybe I, I saw I saw you talking about it, but um, that you almost enlisted in the Marines when you were younger. Was right. there something about William's background that appealed to you, given your previous interests? Well, I, I actually did enlist in the Marines. I, I had taken the first oath, and I'd gone to this hotel where they they do like these first tests that they do, like the medical examinations and these physicals. And then at the last moment, you know, stuff came around. My band got a gig, and you know, the, you know, my friend that I was going to go with, so he and I, he and I had a falling out, and then it just didn't it didn't it didn't happen. Um, 
so yeah, I think there is always something. There's a little, a little part of me that just wonders, you know, wow, what kind of life would that have been? You know, just that the trajectory. At the time, I wanted to go in for combat photography, so I still had this kind of like artistic, you know, bent for it. And I remember they had given me a pamphlet of all like the the famous artists that had been Marines, like Brian Dennehy and these different people. Um, yeah, so like they were speaking specifically to people that were interested in that. So yeah, there's there's certainly a part of me that's curious about that and can relate to that idea. You know, I think there's a, uh, my mind can work in that kind of military way often. Yeah, like a, a particular kind of shutting off of elements of myself to like focus on the mission, you know. So, yeah, the, the, there's something to that. And and then the being someone that grew up with a, in a very religious household, you know, the idea of guilt and the role that guilt plays. And so, those two things kind of coming together. Uh, yeah, and this this was the, the other really interesting thing, right? You show a character that's very closed off, but you're with him so much and you're hearing his voice and you're hearing his voiceover. So, you can't help just by the very nature of the construct to get closer to this character and you're with him and you've decided this is my, this is my protagonist. And you have a sense that he's done something wrong. I mean, he killed somebody, he did something bad. And then when it's revealed what he did, it's so bad, you know, it is really, it's about as bad as it can get, right? And then what happens? Like how, how do we stay with this character after that point? And I think the fact that this is someone who lives in like a self-flagellating uh, purgatory of his own making, I think there's just something that's so compelling about that. You sort of play a father figure to Ty Sheridan's character and also in Dune, um, the actual father for, for Timothy. These are very different roles, but was there something about that specific part of them that, that appealed to you? Um, I, I wouldn't say that that's the thing that, that particularly appealed to me first. You know, there were so many other elements of both of those uh, things. But as I entered into those stories, you're absolutely right that those those are kind of the pivotal elements of uh, who those characters end up being. You know, it's their identity. You know, especially for William, he's living just this kind of non-existence, and it's this kid that suddenly gives him a new identity, or at least a new uh, a window opens onto a possible life of redemption, or a life of at least a life. Uh, and I know Ty as well. Like we worked on, we worked together before, and such a such a sweet guy, you know. And I'm I'm a relatively new dad. I've got a two year old and a four year old boys as well. And uh, so yeah, I didn't have to stretch too far to think about that kind of feeling of trying to impart the better qualities of your life onto somebody else in the hopes that they don't make the same mistakes. Yeah, absolutely. Transitioning over to Dune, what was your journey with that? I mean, were you a fan of the, of, of the book or the previous movies when you were younger? Yeah, I, I was a big fan of the book. Uh, my dad also, I remember he had both the uh, David Lynch film and the uh, the miniseries from like 2000 on on tape at home. Uh, he really loves, loves Dune. And so, I wrote to Denis when I heard that he was directing it. And just said that I was a big fan, and he said, "Okay, good to know, good to know." And then, yeah, a couple of years later, he wrote and sent me the script and said, Wait, two uh, years." Yeah, it was about two years. <laughs> yeah, it took a while. It took a while. 
and uh, he sent me the script and he didn't tell me what character. He just said, take a look and see if, see what, you know, speaks to you. And for me, it felt pretty obvious that I, the Duke, you know, for me, it's the Duke, even the way he's described in the book, uh, it just, something that I related to, you know, just his, it's a tragic character. And for some reason I'm drawn to tragic characters. (laughs) And, uh, you know, the fact that he's just from the get go, he's just up against it and still trying to do the right thing, trying to impart his values to his son, trying to survive, um, you know, doing anything he can to to get some leverage in this impossible situation. I just found that really kind of heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. As you were sort of prepping for this, like as an actor, I can imagine, you know, you knew that this was going to be a massive production, you know, these huge sets, these these massive effects, this really big cast. How do you sort of unlock your character in the midst of all this bigness and keep it real? Yeah, well, it's just uh locating the source of of real emotion in the character his engine and and then you know relentlessly digging and digging and going back to the book and i'd I'd come back to denis with like hey you know there's this really cool thing in the book Uh, you know is there some place that we can add this in and um you know continually trying to deepen it and make it more interesting and make it more resonant um even you know, uh, his last words, uh, he didn't have any words written. He had no dialogue written. And uh, I really felt like he's got to say something at the end. And so, I, I kind of looked through the book and I found this thing that he says. In the book, he says it to his troops, but he says, here I am, here I remain. And uh, I just thought that was a really powerful thing to say. And uh, and so, I was glad that that ended up being his final words before he bites down on that tooth. Um, So, but that's just one example of, you know, looking, you know, that scene with Lady Jessica uh, right before they go to sleep. That was one that we worked on and kind of invented that was not in the script originally. Uh, So, there was a lot of room to to try to, uh, to get to the heart of that because it was clear to all of us that the real emotional core of the whole film is the family is mom, dad, and and Paul. And if you don't care about them or if you if they're not a if you don't really believe that trifecta, um, it's not gonna really have a lot of impact what happens later. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I'm glad you brought up the tooth biting scene. Um I mean you have some really strong scenes in the movie, but the most memorable for one for me was that one. Mm. Um, your scene with the Baron. I mean, you can't move. You're naked. You have you have to sort of communicate everything with your eyes. Um, what was it like shooting that scene? And what kind of direction did you get from Denis? Well, it was pretty nightmarish. That that whole scenario and that's that set was just astounding. And the lighting. Uh, I mean, yeah. everything about it was just so scary. <laughs> um. Yeah, I'm trying. You know, it's like I'm trying to remember when he first said, "Like, well, I think it must have been in the script." I think it was just like he's been stripped of his clothing, you know. And there was some thought, you know. I think originally, like, you know, he doesn't have to be naked. I was like, "No, he should be naked, man. This is like a, (laughs) it's it's like Christ on the cross kind of moment, you know." Yeah. And uh, and so we kind of came up with a few different ideas of what his posture would be, Um, and then that's where we came up with that great idea of seeing the bull's head. This this. 
um, motif that's been you know never talked about really or explained. It's just kind of been traveling along with him as this omen. And then just getting finally to have, have a chance to play with Stellan uh, Skarsgård as the as the bear, and that was just incredible. It's terrifying, he's oh, so he was terrifying. terrifying, and <laughs> just the floating in this weird gown. Um, yeah. That was really terrifying. But I, I loved it. We, we had a lot of fun. We laughed so much. So <laughs> I would not I expect that. <laughs> at one point when Denis wasn't looking, I may have left my cock sock in his pocket just <laughs> so he just had a little bit of me next to him when I left. <laughs> like like a little handkerchief. Like a Just little a little handkerchief. Just a little <laughs> musty handkerchief. <laughs> Yeah, well, going going from that, um, I mean, and you sort of you sort of um, referred to the the old um, the other um, remakes of Dune, and and it's been sort of met with mixed success. Um, you know, the movie and and you know some of the, the the other things. What do you think it is about this particular adaptation that seems to resonate and work? I think Denis just found a way to distill it to its essence and it's a really poetic film um and i think weirdly enough for as as wild as it is it's there just feels like there's something really personal about it um and it's hard to explain but uh i think it's it's less about a communicating an idea it's just like his it's his emotional expression of what you see on there uh that just feels like someone's vision it really does and uh, I think that has a lot to do with it. I think Timothy is just astounding in it. Um, the mixture of that with the production design and the, the, the sound of the, the piece is just unlike anything I've heard. So, you know, he, he just captures the, the truth of the story, which is this great clash of cultures. So it's, it's about human history. And I think you you feel that in the way that he approaches it, uh, you can feels like you can smell it and taste it. It feels very um, visceral in that way. You know, it's not just heady. It's not like a head trip. But, you know, it, it it has those elements of it. But it, you know, it's uh, I, I think there's just deep, deep feeling in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of deep, um, both of these characters, William and um, and the Duke. They're pretty heavy. They're pretty, pretty serious. I mean, was there, what, did you do anything to decompress between takes besides playing jokes on Denis? But uh, what, what did you do to sort of get out of that space and, and get back into it? Well, on Dune, we it really, because I had Josh Brolin there and, and Timmy, I mean, between, you know, the four of us and then you throw Momoa into the mix, it's just a madhouse. I mean, it was just, we had, we really, really laughed way too much. <laughs> and, uh, and so we just had the best time. We'd play guitars, you know, and uh, we would just constantly be making bad jokes. And uh, it just was, it really felt like, uh, you know, family in a great way. Um, uh, and then on, on, on Card Counter, I kind of made that there wasn't a ton of time. It was only a 20 day shoot. Uh, but definitely when, when Tiffany Haddish was on set, we would, we would have some good times. But, but on that one, you know, I think it required me to to kind of stay stay in that zone while we were while we were shooting. Right. Lastly, this is the awardist, and and the reason that we're we're having you on is because we love your performances, and Dune especially has been getting um, a lot of attention in the race. How does it feel to be on this ride for 
potentially two two very different things. Uh, you know, it's great. You know, you you want. Uh, I'd be lying if I said I, I I didn't want the the work I do to have some sort of cultural impact. And um, the more it's talked about, the more people watch it, the more people think about it. Um, it's it's a rewarding thing um, because so much thought goes into it from across the board. You know, everybody. And and these two things in particular, you know, they were a, a lot of love and uh, passion and um, point of view was brought to them. Uh, so so it means a, a whole hell of a lot to me um, to be able to continue the conversation about it. Well, thank you for having this conversation with us. Um, thank you for your time. It was great meeting you, Oscar. Thanks, Clarissa. I appreciate it. Nice to speak with you. Thank you for stopping by, Oscar. Dune and the Card Counter are available to stream now. And that's it for this episode of The Awardist. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, rate the podcast, and leave us an award-winning review on Apple Podcasts. To keep the conversation with us going, follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials at EW on Twitter and Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag us at ClarissaNYC1 and Josh Rothkoff. We'll see you next week. This episode of the Awardist podcast is hosted by Clarissa Cruz and Josh Rothkoff, produced by Chanel Johnson and Sammy Junio, executive produced by Shana Krokmal, edited and mixed by Sammy Junio. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>